This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 50, Goddesses, Meditation and Love. My name is Erica, and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Sally Kempton. Sally is a widely respected teacher of meditation and spiritual wisdom. She has spent over four decades practicing, teaching, and writing on meditation and spiritual philosophy. Sally spent 20 years as a Swami in a traditional Vedic order of monks. She is the author of the best-selling books, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses of Yoga, other book called Meditation for the Love of It, and she also produced an audio program called Doorways to the Infinite, The Art and Practice of Tantric Meditation. She is on the faculty at Eslin and Kripalu, teaches meditations on websites like Glow, Gaia, and Yoga Journal, and she's a contributor editor at the Yoga Journal as well. Sally teaches online courses and seminars on meditation, spiritual philosophy, and leads retreats and workshops in the US, in Canada, and in Europe. As always, I really appreciate your support for this podcast. So if you enjoy it and you'd like to get even more content, you can get access to extra exclusive episode, tutorial, guided meditation, and much more if you become a VIP member. Know that you can make a really big difference, even with a small donation as you support me financially through that membership. And it helps me cover production costs and it allows me to continue this podcast. So if you'd like to support me, if you enjoy the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a VIP member. As a thank you, you'll get access to new exclusive content every month. Okay, are you ready? Let's get to our episode of today with Sally Campton. Hi, Sally. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really grateful you're taking the time. My pleasure. Sally, for listeners that don't know you very well, can we start with you telling us a bit about yourself and your spiritual journey? I know it's a special one, interesting one for sure. It, well, it's a long, it's a long story, but I'll give you the uh, the cliff notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was started practicing in the seventies, in the early seventies. I was a journalist in New York. Uh, I had a big awakening, um, more or less out of the blue, mm-hmm. and uh, and then realized that I wasn't able to hold that experience, and so began meditating, practicing. I've I was in a Western spiritual community for a year or so. And then I met my teacher, Swami Muktananda, and I lived, studied with him for about eight years until he died in, in the 80s. And then I remained in the organization, became a Swami, mm-hmm. a Sanyasin, and a teacher. And then in 2002, I left uh, and began teaching publicly. So what else should you know? I've written a couple of books. Mm-hmm. Meditation for the Love of It and Awakening Shakti, which is a book about God and impact our lives at, you know, as vehicles for practice and also as helpers. Uh, and um, I teach internationally. I also do a lot of teleclasses, which are, of course, now coming into fashion. Everyone's yes. offering online. So um, and that's pretty much the short version. I live in California in Carmel Valley. And, um, and I do a lot of practice and a lot of teaching and uh, and I'm very blown away by this current situation. <laughs> what do so, you mean like, by that? Uh, well, let's not go into it too much, <laughs> okay. but um, I, I, it's been clear to me for a long time and clear to a lot of the people I know who are future oriented that we are in the middle of a huge shift, a kind of tectonic shift. I'm sure you're feeling this too. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and and that you know when there are big shifts in global consciousness, they often involve serious uh, crises. Yeah. And of course, this is a classic one, and uh, and so is the economic fallout, which I hope is not as bad as some people say it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I have found that if you really are holding the attitude that, okay, this is, this is the shift. This is how it is. This is how, this is how it feels when there is a big paradigm shift in the world. It's not always comfortable. It's sometimes scary. Uh, But we also can tune into that, that force of evolutionary well-being, as it were, which, you know, in my teaching, I tend to call goddess, um, partly because it's a kind of a very friendly, loving, personal way to think about the protective forces in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, you can think of it as, as the, the universe, um, you know, going through its paradigm shift, which is going on inside us as well as in the external world. And to, to really ask ourselves, okay, what in, what is it in me that, resists this and obviously there's lots of things that we would want to resist or not have happening Mm -hmm. what is it in me that is fully ready fully on board for an evolutionary shift you know and i think that for your generation um it's you know it is the it's a necessity it's it's what's happening it's in a certain sense what this historic moment is like for your generation and the generations before, just before, and the one growing up now. Uh, and this is, you know, in a certain sense, this is, this is the universe's gift to you mm-hmm. because I do believe it's a time when we can start to remake structures with a lot of help from <laughs> Goddess Kali and the paradigm-shifting yeah. revolutionary forces. Yeah. So you mentioned that you enjoy working with goddesses and that's part or the base of your book you were mentioning in the beginning, uh, Awakening Shakti. Why particularly goddesses? You mentioned like that nurturing sense, but I'm sure there's some, you have a special affinity to them. I don't know if it's the difference between that masculine or feminine power or why were you just so drawn to that aspect of? Well, it's been my experience that most of the important relationships in life, certainly in my life, uh, come, they come on their own. Mm. You know, in other words, uh, I didn't go out looking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to, have a, to have relationships with subtle universal forces. They kind of brought themselves to my attention. And one of the, um, I was in a, you know, in a Hindu, in a, in a spiritual community, which was run by an Indian master whose language was the language of the Hindu mythology, you know, Hindu mythology, Hindu philosophy. Mm-hmm. He would never called himself a Hindu. Um, and I, I've come to understand why, mm-hmm. because, you know, he was an enlightened non-dual master and such teachers, I guess you would say, including myself, so I'm certainly not a master, uh, you know, really tend to to see ourselves in a much more universal way than in a religious tradition. So I was not particularly interested in Hindu deities, it, you know, even though I was very interested in the non-dual philosophy of Vedanta and Kashmir Shaivism. 
And then one day I, we were doing a festival. Uh, my teacher's successor, who's a woman, uh, you know, loves to do celebrations. We were in India and she put on a huge full day, full on festival for uh, Navaratri, which is a nine day festival in honor of the goddess there. It actually, the spring Navaratri actually starts tomorrow. Mm. So there's a, there's a 10 day goddess festival starting tomorrow. I don't know when you're airing this, but. It will be uh, after that. Guys, if yeah, you're listening, so we are um, on 24th of March today. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. On the 20, so it starts on the 25th mm-hmm. and goes on for 10 days. Uh, at, so, and in this festival, different faces of the divine feminine are, are um, invoked and honored. And mm-hmm. I was telling a story uh, about the kind of divine romance between the goddess and Shiva, who mm-hmm. is in my tradition is her the masculine counterpart, the masculine consort. And in the middle of telling the story, I was suddenly overwhelmed mm-hmm. with ecstatic tears. It was kind of embarrassing. And it, it, it just seeded something uh, that, that kind of unfolded from there. This was in the early 90s. And I began, first of all, finding a lot of power in the natural world, really, really experiencing sacred presence coming to me through trees and through the ground and through flowers and through storms. You know, I, and, you know, one of the ways that we begin to recognize the presence of sacred energy in the physical world, in the, you know, in the world, is to really tune into the movements of nature. You know, in that sense, goddess practices similar to certain shamanic practices because it's very much about, you know, finding the the consciousness that exists in the physical, in our bodies, you know, in the earth, in the in the weather. And for instance, a, a situation like the virus, like the pandemic, uh, you know, you can see it as as just this this horrible curse that has somehow descended upon the world. Um, you can see it as a result of, you know, of our global carelessness. You can also see it as a manifestation of sacred energy, um, which, you know, we can actually, this is going to sound strange, but whom we can actually be in dialogue with, who we, which we can have a relationship with. So, I mean, if you were gonna have a relationship with the coronavirus, you know, with, you know, you might start by tuning into your own fear or your own disbelief, you know, your own personal reactions to it. And then you might ask yourself, okay, so what, what are my reactions tell, telling me? And what is, the, what is the situation itself telling me? Mm-hmm. You know, and what you find is that, that with the, the messages that it has are, of course, on many, many levels, social levels, um, that health, medical, medical levels, but they also can speak to us about our own feelings of vulnerability, uh, you know, allowing us to start to tune into what makes us feel protected, allowing us to tune into our own attitudes towards health, disease, age, uh, etc. And in my experience, having been through a fair amount of medical issues in my life, mm-hmm. What they always teach you is a kind of fearlessness in the face of change, you know. So, uh, and I've come to to recognize that if you tune into the um, 
and you know, I, and I'm not in any way minimizing uh, the you know the the horror of all mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. We're talking about perspective. Yeah, we're talking about perspective exactly, and and we're talking about what lets us take perspective. Um, my experience is that that having a sense of the cosmos as you know somehow um, personally willing to protect me is extraordinarily helpful. Mm. And you just have to approach it not in a superstitious way, but in the way of kind of opening yourself to the sense of the energy that is always protecting you. Um, I can say a lot more about this, but I I want to leave some room for your comments and questions. (laughs) Um, this feels very, like a very tantric way of seeing what is happening to me, like that connection to the energy and within ourselves, but also around us. And a lot of your work is based in non-dual tantra. Would you comment on that and maybe explain what it's the core principle or a bit more? Sure, sure. Well, uh, tantra, uh, is Tantra means, well, there's several meanings of it. It's one of those Sanskrit words. It has a lot of meanings. But, uh, but one of the meanings that I have found very useful, very helpful, is that it's, it's a tradition which offers innumerable tools, both philosophical and intellectual, but also very, um, very body-oriented, very subtle body-oriented, for tuning in in an experiential way to to the sacredness of every part of your experience. And, you know, Tantra is famous for being non-rejective in Mm. that. In other words, that not putting anything outside the circle of sacredness. Uh, And of course, um, this only makes sense if you really understand the nature of the human mind and are willing to, you know, and have a strong ethical practice because it, you know, Tantra has sometimes been used as an excuse for doing all sorts of crazy stuff that is not helpful to yourself or anybody else. Mm -hmm. So assuming that your interest is in evolution and in, you know, making the world more, uh, more beautiful and more inclusive, Tantra is a fantastic philosophical basis for doing this because it really teaches us to find every particle of our body sacred, every particle of the world sacred, and all the ups and downs of our lives as being intrinsically offering us pathways to enlightenment and, you know, which we could simply call wider perspective, but which we can also call genuine enlightenment, recognizing not just your interconnection, but also your non-dual connection to all of this. So Tantra is about non-duality, really, but it's, and it's about not making a split between the mind and the body and between ourselves and others. And while recognizing the importance of boundaries, also recognizing that ultimately there are no boundaries. And of course, that's what the global pandemic is <laughs> showing you know, us. Shows that there are no boundaries. Uh, and, you know, Tantra is also, it's a very devotional path. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of emphasis on tuning into higher energies and particularly to shaktis, to to feminine energies, because the basic teaching of Tantra is that uh, the divine, let's call it the, you know, this, the 
incredibly subtle reality, consciousness, energy, spirit that underlies everything that was prior to the Big Bang, that that, that um, source energy has two aspects. It's utterly still, unmoving, eternal, unchanging. It's also incredibly dynamic and creative and filled with power and possibility and you know, the quality of becoming. And in the tantras, that quality of creativity and dynamism and power is considered feminine and is called shakti, which means power. So the basic tantric tradition is that there is this underlying stillness and, uh, and vastness, which is the source of everything. And that, that, that underlying stillness has a dynamic part, which manifests everything that is. So, and the, the forms which allow us to tune directly into the dynamic aspect of reality are, are goddess forms. Mm. People who do, you know, religious practice in Hindu, Hindu polytheism will often um, invoke goddesses because goddesses are really about the world and your life. Um, they, they're, they're also about the transcendent. But, you know, the, the shakti, the, the feminine quality in the cosmos is, first of all, because it is, it is, this, it is the dynamic force behind all the, you know, the particles of matter, the quarks, you know, the, the, the atoms, the molecular structures, the cells, they're all made out of this innate intelligent energy, which in my tradition we call shakti. And goddesses are kind of condensed forms of that power. Mm. So when you, so in other words, invoking a goddess, whether through mantra, through, um, you know, through imagination, will actually allow you to tune directly into that source of, of power and transformation. So it is, I have found a very effective avenue for, you know, for actually becoming aware of the, the forces in the universe which are present for us, which are ready to help us, and which we actually need to remember and invoke. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there are a lot of ways to do this, a lot of words that we use to do it, a lot of pictures, visuals, sounds that we use to do it. But the more targeted we can be, the more we learn that, that the universe, we can speak to the universe and the universe responds. Mm. You know, that, that we are in a living dynamic system and that, uh, and that the universe wants to help us. Mm-hmm. So would you say that as a basic practice, you can kind of choose a goddess and invoke it and then work on the awareness of how you feel or how you connect? Or do you have to just let it come to you like it happened to you? Is there a different path or how do we choose uh, or... Um, it's a, that's a really good question. I've actually written a book about this called Awakening Shakti, mm-hmm. which is about 10 of the major goddesses uh, in the yogic pantheon. And there are, there are very extensive chapters on each one and exercises, mantras, and ways to make that discernment. So I would say that, that if you're interested in this, that, you know, that you, the first step would be to read about some of the different great goddesses uh, who don't have to be Hindu goddesses necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
So Durga, Kali, Lakshmi, my favorite goddess is um, Bhuvaneshwari, who's really the form of, of the divine feminine whom I'm invoking in these times because her, her, she, she represents the space that holds all life. Mm. And she's a very, very loving, nurturing, protective, uh, healing goddess, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or Isis or Athena, um, you know, any of the Western goddesses. But, you know, as you read about them, you start to feel where you connect. And my, one of my premises is that every one of us has, uh, you know, is connected to sacred archetypes. And most of us know which sacred archetypes we're connected to. You know, if, if you're a person who's very into communication, writing, music, you, pr- you probably have a connection to Sorry. a goddess like Saraswati, mm-hmm. right? If you're more of a warrior, uh, it, you know, you, you would perhaps be more drawn to or be more expressive of Kali or Durga uh, or the goddess Athena, who's also a warrior or one of the Celtic warrior goddesses. So, you know, as you kind of, as you sort of get to know the myths of these beings, you also get to know how they relate to your own mm-hmm. psyche. And so that's, that's one part of it. And, you know, in, there's generally speaking in most traditions that work with deity practice, uh, you know, the, the assumption is that there'll be one, one form, one figure, whether it's Jesus or Mother Mary or Durga or Krishna or your teacher, if you're in the kind of tradition that, you know, has regards the teacher mm-hmm. as a, as a sacred archetype. Um, but one of the beautiful things about polytheism is that there's also the understanding that in different situations, you need particular forms of help. So you might have a goddess whom you feel is, you know, your, your goddess, but then when you, you know, when you, when you're trying to understand, when you need to make a revolutionary act act in your life, you might invoke the goddess Kali to give you strength. Mm-hmm. When you, you know, you want to chill, to, you know, to, to, to feel pure being, you might invoke a goddess like Kuan Yin, who's not a Hindu goddess, but mm-hmm. very, you know, very similar. Um, when, when what you want is abundance and uh, any form of wealth or romantic love, mm-hmm. You would invoke Lakshmi. Lakshmi and you get to know, you know, you get to feel. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and they all very, very potent. The more you are willing to, uh, to explore them and play with them, as it were, the more you get to realize that, that they, they are, in a certain sense, friends. And they also exist as psychic states within you. Um, so the psychic state of Lakshmi is very gentle and you know, harmonious and smooth. The psychic state of Kali is forceful, mm, so intense. Mm-hmm. And you start to be able to identify these states in yourself. And rather than thinking of them as edgy parts of your personality in some cases, or as the person that you really want to be in others, you think, oh, this is an aspect of my, mm. of my divine feminine nature, which is not just one thing. You know, we're all amazingly complex and creative beings and invoking sacred energies can help us really tune into our the different layers and qualities that we carry. Mm-hmm. So we have inside of us 
all like as aspect of ourself, we have their each like their what they bring. I don't want to say personality, but that's the word that comes. And yeah. we might invoke them depending on what we need in this moment, but also probably I assume through phases of life. You were mentioning like at this moment you were connecting more to one in particular, but as our need and our life flows, also that connection might evolve. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Totally. Well said. <laughs> so if we feel connected to one in particular, in your book, you were um, talking about awakening Shakti. You can work with one with the mantras, the invocation, the meditation for a little bit of time, see how you feel. And then you can go to another one and kind of take your time through exploring that world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and every you know because every one of the goddesses, at least the goddesses in the book, are profoundly benign and helpful. Mm. It's not going to hurt <laughs> to play with one or two of them. Some people are afraid to work with Kali. Do you have any comment on that? Like, is it how strong of that energy is, or I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I well, Kali is the extreme. Uh, aspect of the Durga energy, mm -hmm. which is also a warrior energy, but much more of a motherly warrior energy. So if you've, if I would suggest if someone feels nervous about Kali to practice with Durga, who, who has just as much strength, um, but in a less extreme way. So uh, Kali is, um, Kali upends structures. So if you are, concerned about having things taken away in your life and <laughs> structures upended, you might feel afraid to get totally involved with Kali. But I would say one thing uh, in my experience is that her, you know, Kali is a very, very powerful goddess, a very, very powerful energy. And part of what she does is clear, clear things out, uh, is destroy unnecessary structures and often structures that you, up thought were necessary to be absolutely honest mm -hmm. so but or they were at one point but they might not be anymore but they or they may not be in the future mm -hmm. and sometimes they're taken away before we're ready to have them <laughs> taken away <laughs> yeah i personally have always had to have everything rested from my clutching fingers you know, <laughs> I, i very rarely will let go of it myself so kali is a great friend in that way if you tend to be stuck but the other side of it is that Once the clearing process is done, um, and there's, the, there's a certain point in the process where your trust is challenged, and, you know, and the, the, the thing here is when your trust is challenged to turn towards her. In other words, to, to, to really, I, I've been talking about dialoguing with these energies. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say you're, you, know, you feel things falling apart in your life or in the world and you and it's you know scares the shit out of you and you know and you say to that you know you you let the fear be there and you you know you just you say okay to you who is behind all things um show me how i can be steady here show me how i can trust you and turn towards that power in the universe mm. uh and it, you know It, they say what you resist persists. So the corollary of that is when you're willing to turn towards an upheaval and accept it, then you will fall through the 
the, you know, the intensity into the love that's underneath it. And this is one of the reasons why I really love goddess practice because all goddesses are about love. Mm. You know, they're, they're, some of them it's more obvious on the surface. Yeah. But a goddess like Kali, the, the depth of love that you, that you fall into when you fall into her is bigger, greater than any love I've ever experienced. And I've, I've, I've experienced quite a lot of sacred love from in various situations. And the moment so just to know that about her. Yeah. She's demanding and she's also unbelievably rewarding. Mm. Coming back to the idea of love, the moment of awakening you were talking about in the beginning, in that moment is a connection to love that you felt. Am I right? Yeah. And I've also heard you say... Uh, Your priority is to experience love in yeah. life. And I really, that really stuck with me. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how can we, we've talked about goddess uh, practices, but how else can we experience more love? Not from a place of woundedness, but like from that inner source of love. Yeah. Uh, well, um, yes. And I, I'll give you some method okay uh, um and I, and i just want to say what i've discovered about about love please um both as a feeling as an emotional state and as what it deeply is you know i think one thing that we're we start to realize as we when we're doing that 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 love sadhana um is that Love, it really is the ground. In other words, you, you know, you fall and fall and fall in during the bad times of your life, you know, through fear, through sadness, through rejection, through abandonment. And if you can, if you can stay present and keep going forward, you fall, you fall into love because love is the floor. Love is the ground. Mm. Love is, love is what is. And it's one of the reasons why you often see an incredibly poor people, you know, By, by people who are incredibly poor and have very little will often be much more helpful to the people around you. You know, someone once said, if you're on a bus and you, you know, and you don't have your fare and you look around for help, it will be one of the poor people who, who steps up to give you a dollar or what, you know, a dollar fifty for the bus. Um, and it's because when, when you're, you know, when your life is precarious If you can stay steady in your heart, uh, you do start to realize that it is all about love. So now I'm, here we're talking about one of the forms of love, which is, in, you know, interpersonal love, which, you know, we tend to approach through romance, you know, through romantic love mm -hmm. and to think of love as romantic love, which is definitely one of the best forms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the, maybe the best. Um, But a lot of it, a lot of the practice of opening to the love that's always there is to start to, to learn how to remove the veils from your heart. And I'm literally talking about the heart center, which you know, is where we get a lot of the blows and wounds that come to us from the world. So we have learned to armor our hearts, to close our hearts, mm -hmm. and to, to learn how to open your heart For some of us, it takes a while 
so I I often I've I always suggest that you 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 learn how to f- feel into the energy of your heart space. Uh, there's a meditation that I sometimes teach that's that's also uh, a form of it is taught in heart math. Um, I'm just giving it some scientific credibility. <laughs> it kind of came to me spontaneously about 30 years ago. And it, you know, where you, you breathe in as though there were a, a window or an opening in your chest wall by the sternum, sort of between the thymus and the xiphoid process. And I think that's what it's called, that U-shaped notch at the, around the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. Process. And, uh, and you breathe into that as though you were breathing into the heart. Uh, Actually, imagine a flower or imagine, you know, imagine a room or a cave or a light in the heart. And you just keep breathing into it uh, using a mantra. Um, A a mantra is very helpful, but what it really does open the heart is is a very, very gentle, very loving inhalation, breathing it into the heart center, and then with the exhalation again, very gently, allowing the energy of the breath to spread through your whole chest area. Mm. And then as, you know, what, what generally happens when you first begin tuning into the heart, what we tend to become aware of first is the blocks, you know, is the discomfort, is the hardness, is the sadness. And, you know, and you just, you just let yourself, there's several ways you can do that. You can just be present with it, like not try to move it, just, just be present and breathe into it. And, and then start to feel that the particles of contraction in the heart are very gently coming apart. Um, you can also do a, do a meditation, which I love and which I teach a lot, which is where you actually imagine the contractions around your heart as veils and you take, you know, you pull them out, you pull them off mm. uh, and you offer them into an imaginary fire or you offer them into the ocean. Um, and this, this starts to, to actually move away layers from the heart. So most of us have to do some of that clearing practice. Uh, and then I, I have three favorite practices for this. One is, um, mantra, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, it's very good to get a mantra from a teacher who gives it to you with some mojo. Um, another is literally visualizing subtle, delicate particles of very pale, rosy pink light flowing into your heart and and flowing through your heart center. Um, Another is to imagine a loving being in front of you, which could be a goddess, which could be um, a formless, you know, being. It could be Jesus or your grandmother. Just imagine that being in front of you and feel that you're drawing in love from that being or drawing in love from the universe. Uh, And as you keep doing it, it begins to become real begins to feel real it it's a practice mm-hmm. you know it's very much a practice and every now and then we get a download which uh, you know I, m- many of us have been fortunate enough to experience at some point in our lives you just get it you just you just get this overwhelming 
recognition of of love that's bigger than anything you've you felt before. Um, but it is also we also can cultivate it and invite love, uh, and it works. So that's that's beautiful. It's really it's really a great tool and tip. Thank you. Um, talking about meditation, you have another book that was uh, called Meditation for the Love of It. So how do you encourage people to move from I have to meditate to get XYZ out of it to I want to and I love to? How do we transition into that? Uh, really good question. Um, I, I think, first of all, one thing that's really important is, is to realize that there are moments in your life when you are naturally in a meditative state. You know, one of them, it, you know, the, which I think pretty much all of us know about, is the state that arises when you've been doing strong physical practice, when you've been running you know, or walking uh, intensely, and certainly at the end of a yoga, <clears throat> of a yoga class when you're in Shavasana, that, that there's, you know, something happens to your energy body in the, as a result of, the, I guess, the endorphins that are released that, that opens the state, which is the meditative state. It's a state of being, beingness. And then to start to, to look at what simple practices, and I, I think, you know, I always come back to the breath. Mm-hmm. It's in the, the breath is, it's, we all have it. It's it's here for us as long as our lungs are working. You know, the breath is the breath is constantly enlivening us and caressing us. So to simply sit and breathe into the heart, um, you know, adding light to the breath and making sure that you do it softly. Uh, perhaps adding an affirmation. Perhaps doing loving kindness practice. Um, may I be happy. With the inhalation, may I be healthy. With the exhalation, that's because we're talking about love. May I be, may I, may I experience the love that the universe has for me. Mm. May I offer that love to others. You know that, again, especially in a time like this, uh, for many of us, finding words that can kind of help kindle a, a soft-hearted space and start with five minutes. You know, most of us even if we're extremely resistant and most of us are resistant mm-hmm. you know, to anything. That's why I'm asking about. this question. Yeah. Yes, of course. And I, me too. So, <laughs> you know, so if you say to yourself, all right, five minutes, and I'm going to, I'm going to really give myself to this practice for five minutes. You know, when I lose focus, I will come back as soon as I remember. It's all you have to do. Set an alarm at the end of five minutes, just bow yourself and get up and then you can start to what happens is that you start to enjoy it Mm. you know Mm -hmm. you actually start to you start to have moments maybe the last 30 seconds before you get up when it feels good and and then you maybe add a minute you know and and when it feels good when you feel uh meditation taking hold you stay with it for a little while Mm. and let it cook uh in that book meditation for the love of it and you know that's not the only book there's a zillion great meditations around on insight timer um you know find you know play with them find a couple try a different one every day 
you know, and notice the ones that feel good because the whole art of loving meditation is to find, you know, to find what feels good, find what feels and what feels easy, you know, what feels uh, easy in the sense, because sometimes it's, you know, I personally like doing hard, trying hard meditations because it, you know, it makes, makes a focus and interesting stuff happens. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. So, you know, consider that you're going to do a meditation experiment and, you know, spend half an hour a couple of times a week playing with different meditation practices. I mean, can you take the breath from the heart up to the region above the crown? You know, can you, can you bring the breath all the way down to the muladhara and then bring it up to the navel? Um, you know, can you, you know, what does it feel like to visualize a goddess? What does it feel like to visualize the sun in your heart? I mean, there's a lot of cool imaginative practices you can do. Uh, and, you know, imagination, speaking as someone who loves fantasy and imagination, you can use your, your, you know, your fantasy and imaginative practice if you're one of those people who likes to do that for meditation. If you're more of a scientific person, do a practice that, you know, that you know actually, um, you know, changes the relationship between your nadis and balances your, you know, your breath. Uh, and, you know, do it because you know it's good for you until you recognize that you actually are enjoying it. Mm-hmm. So start small, try start different small. things, find yeah. something that feels good, stay with that for a while, move from the intellect of, I know this is good for me until you're like, I'm craving it now. Yeah. Exactly. Or I'm just, I just, I, I'll put it, I'll put it like this for a hardcore meditation resistor. It's not, I'm craving it. It's like, I know I'll feel so much better after I meditate. <laughs> you, know? mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to, but I'll feel, be- it's like exercise, you know, you, yes. And then there's a point where, you know, you're jogging because you love it you know, because you're getting the endorphin rush. You're doing, you know, you're doing an, at 45 minutes or an hour of asana practice because it feels so good in your muscles. You know, it's, but first feels good afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing tips. Um, anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? If there's one takeaways you'd like listeners to leave with today, what would that be? I would say the most important thing in your life is to cultivate the use of your imagination for exalted and uplifting scenarios in other words um notice when you're starting to get bummed out or pessimistic notice it don't demonize it let yourself feel it for sure um but but get to know your own antidotes you know whether your antidote is taking a bath or going for a walk or repeating a mantra you really need to have a lot of ways of creating a positive internal experience for yourself and to do it without denialism and without Pollyanna-ishness and with an attitude of acceptance that life is full of ups and downs. And some of the, some of the downs are really hard and some of the ups are difficult to rise to. Mm-hmm. You know? But if you've cultivated a sense of, of your own, I would say, essential sacred intelligence that it's always, it is always there for you. 
We just have to have enough practice to remember to turn to it. Mm, that's beautiful. I'll put all your info in the show notes, obviously. But in the meantime, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to take a teleclass with you, they want to study with you in some way, or they have more questions about all of this, or they want to get your books? Yes. Um, I have a website, sallykempton.com. Uh, also a Facebook page, which is Sally Kempton Awakened Heart. Uh, and uh, I'm giving a telecourse starting on April 7th for six weeks on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is called uh, Practice for Radical Times. Mm. And it's very much about taking this fundamental yogic text and applying it in a really nitty-gritty practical way uh, to what we need right now. Mm, good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was really a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And thank you, Erica, for all your great questions and your great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. If you do enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to help other people find it. And if you wanted to continue, you'd like to support me, then don't forget, visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat, donate, or become a VIP member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guest of today, Sally Kempton, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Now, before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>